The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we get started in our study of God's Word, let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer to ask His guidance and direction on our time of study. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we're thankful that we can be here to focus on Your Word, that Scripture is very clear that it is Your Word that is that which illuminates our thinking, that which provides absolute truth for us, and that is the means that you use to mature us, the means that you use to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. That it is, though the basic problem between man and you is not knowledge, it is faith, and it is obedience. And fallen man is oriented to disobedience. But as we come to the cross, we recognize that Christ paid the penalty for our sins, and that is our first turning to you. Now as we grow, we recognize that spiritual growth takes place as a result of submission to your word under the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. So we pray that as we study your word this morning, that we would be oriented to its authority and direction in our lives. That whatever our opinions may be, whatever our personal preferences might be, that that would be subsumed and ch- under the authority of your word, And where necessary, those ideas would change as you change us through your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In the scriptures, we get several pictures, just snapshots of heavenly worship. There's, of course, Isaiah chapter 6 when Isaiah is brought into the throne room of God, and we studied this last time as we were looking at angels and his response to seeing God and his recognition of his own unworthiness and hearing the uh, seraphim sing, holy, holy, holy. And then we looked at these passages in Revelation chapter 4 and 5 with this entire scene that takes place before the Supreme Court of Heaven, and then there are other additional scenes in the book of Revelation that focus on what transpires in heaven and a heavenly framework for understanding this concept of worship. Now, some of you 
may not be aware of the fact that we are living in a time when for the past 20 or 25 years, the whole concept of worship, as it has been taught in many seminaries, as it's proclaimed in many churches, as it is understood by uh, numerous people, has gone through a radical change. And I mean a radical change. And it has led to uh, church splits. It's led to a lot of strife and division. It has led to a lot of uh, changes in the basic orientation of many, many churches. And it's part of a whole uh, matrix of different things that have happened coming out of the late 1960s and early 70s in terms of uh, teaching on the local church. A primary motive that underlies much of this had to do with growth, even though it's it's usually talked about in terms of evangelism. That what has driven this has been the concept uh, of growth and somehow trying to make the Bible more relevant, as if uh, sound doctrine wasn't relevant. And as I've always said, it's not that the Bible isn't relevant to you. It's that because you're a fallen, sinful, totally depraved creature, you're not relevant to God. And it is the creature that needs to be conformed to God and not the church conformed to the creature. And there are numerous other elements that affect all of this thinking about, about worship, and it's changed the whole concept of church music, and many of these things have created some radical divisions, and there's a battle today between what is, uh, I think, very mistakenly identified as traditional uh, worship versus versus contemporary worship. And worship, I have two problems with that. First is the, concept, the way worship is used. Worship today does not refer to what I am doing right now, what you are doing right now, and that is submitting yourself to the teaching of the Word of God. Worship is being used as a synonym for singing and not just singing hymns to God, but singing contemporary praise choruses to God. Another term for this has come under the name praise and worship. And so there's been a change from uh, what is what has been a traditional orientation for hundreds of years, for centuries, in local churches. Now, I understand that historically there's there's a spectrum in terms of worship. You have high church worship that often becomes so uh, so ritualized in liturgy that it's, there's no longer any teaching or instruction and it completely loses, loses its meaning or its sig- significance, at least to the modern man, because there's no teaching or communication about what it's all about. I remember some years ago now, I attended a Presbyterian church here in Houston. And because of my background in church history and having studied the historic creeds of the church, I had a rich appreciation for what they did in reciting various church creeds and and certain uh, things that were said in the service. But I would bet I was the only person in that entire place that had that frame of reference. And for everybody else, it was just something that they went through every Sunday but it didn't have any meaning because they didn't have that historical understanding. They didn't recognize, you know, the battles, the martyrs, the the lives 
that were lost in the process of pulling together those great doctrinal statements and some of the other things that were associated with it. They didn't have the biblical knowledge to appreciate the richness of some of the things that they were saying. So you have on the one hand what we would call what is referred to as high church worship, and then on the other hand you have what is called low church worship, which is a less formal, less ritual, less creedal form of worship. Usually that would refer to something like what we've experienced this morning to the lower forms, which is what you would classify contemporary Christian worship, praise and worship, and those kinds of things. But there, but traditionally, or maybe a better word would be historically, the church has looked at certain basic forms of worship as being biblical and that which puts the focus on God and is theocentric rather than anthropocentric. But what's happened in the last 20 to 30 years is that worship has not only become anthropocentric, which means man-centered, it's become self-oriented, it's become experientially based, and experience and emotion become the criteria for, for the reality of the worship. You'll often hear people say, well, I went to that church, but the worship was so dead. Then when you hear them talk about another church, they say, boy, there was just life to that worship. Well, there was a good drum beat, and everybody was bouncing around, and, and it was more lively, but it wasn't any more biblical. So it might have been a little more emotionally stimulating, but that's not the criterion for worship. Now, I know of several situations in Houston where just within the last couple of years, Solid Bible teaching churches have had administrative shifts, pastoral changes, and they have brought in new pastors that have uh, brought in, uh, and it's, it's always a gradual process. We'll talk some more about this in the coming weeks because I know some of you have no clue what I'm talking about other than maybe once you, uh, you turned on a, uh, something on TV and watched it for 30 seconds and got nauseated and moved on. I understand that a lot of you are in that framework. You've just never seen what else is going on. But there are others of you who have experienced and gone through some of these uh, changes, and you've seen that, and you kind of want to know what's going on, and you have friends or you have, have a family that, that is involved in more what is called more contemporary churches. And you need to know what's, what's going on and why. And it's important for us to take time always to stop and reflect upon what the Bible teaches about the entire subject of worship. And so we're going to take some time on that during the next couple of weeks and hopefully expand our horizons uh, just a little bit. We come to Revelation 4, 9 through 11. And we see the focus on the worship of these who, these who are in heaven surrounding the throne of God. We have three groups. We have the living beings, we have the angels, and we have the 24 elders who are the resurrected, rewarded, uh, raptured church-age believers. In Revelation 4.9, we read that whenever, a very important word there, uh, whenever indicating that this was not not something that they did 24/7 for all, all in other words all the time it was something that they did at certain times in heaven there were certain designated times when there was a convocation 
of creatures before the throne of God for specific purposes, and during that time there would be this worship. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks, it's as if these living creatures who surround the throne of God, and last time I pointed out that they are very similar to cherubs and seraphs. Cherubim and seraphim is the Hebrew plural. And those angels are associated with the holiness and righteousness of God and always viewed in the Scripture as being the closest to the throne of God. And so it's as if these are the ones who are instigating the worship. And then you have uh, others who are participants. And we see some idea of what worship is in this first verse. It's a good Uh, In one sense, it's a good summary of what worship is. It is giving glory and honor and thanks to God. That is one aspect of worship. It is theocentric. That means God-centered. The focal point is not on who we are or what we are doing, but upon God and what he has done, his person and his work. So whenever the living creatures would give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders, these are the representatives uh, in their priest-king function and and the post-judgment seat of Christ period, they would fall down before him who sits on the throne. In the Hebrew, there is the idea that they fall upon their face. They prostrate themselves physically before him who sits on the throne, and they worship him. This is the Greek word proskuneo. We'll get into that in just a little bit. But this is the primary word that is translated worship in the New Testament. They fall down before him and worship him who lives forever and ever, and they cast their crowns before the throne. Now, these crowns are the Stephanos crowns that are the rewards that were distributed by the Lord Jesus Christ at the judgment seat of Christ. They're, they're, they're an, about the same kind of thing as the reeds that were rewarded to athletes in the Olympic Games in Greece. Their uh, reeds, their crowns, were called Stephanos crowns, and it's an award for achievement for that which they have done. And typically when a city would send an athlete to uh, Olympus or to Corinth or to Delphi, one of the different sites of the of the Olympic Games in the ancient world, when that athlete returned, whatever awards he had been given, he would bring and to the temple for the local deity of his village or town or city, and he would put his crowns before that deity in recognition of the fact that even though he was the one who had put forth the effort and the work and everything, he owed his victory ultimately to his God. So that is the idea here is that they are returning these crowns to uh, God the Father in recognition of the fact that he is the one who made it all uh, all possible. Every now and then I hear people say, well, see, this this shows that that you don't keep them. Well, no, that's not what ha- what happens here. It is a a ceremony that recognizes the source, the power, the energy that uh, enabled us to live our Christian life. And so these 24 elders say, now the living beasts were the ones who said, who prayed to the Lord, 
and back in verse 8, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Now, there's an antiphonal thing going on here. Now, it's important to see that here because of what happens when we get into Revelation 5. But the living beings say one thing, and then the 24 elders say something else. Verse 11, they say, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. Now, remember, the focus was glory and honor and thanks. And from the living creatures, here it's glory and honor and power are attributed to the Lord. Why? This is a basis for worship. Because he, first of all, because you are worthy, because you created all things. It is this, uh, an emphasis on the creator-creature distinction, that because God is the creator of all things, he is in his being worthy to be honored and glorified. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Now that brings us to a, a stop or pause in the action as it's laid out here, which is why they came along and uh, <clears throat> put a chapter break here, although there should not be a chapter break. It all flows together in one scene. But what we're focusing on here is just the worship, for that is the word that is used in 410, which is a summary word. Now, the concept of worship is extremely complex because worship involves a lot of different things, as we will see. So you don't restrict worship to just one kind of activity or another kind of activity. It is a very broad term, and so this is one, uh, one form of worship. In the first phrase of their statement of verse 11, where they say, you are worthy, it recognizes the inherent integrity and virtue of the Father as the unique one of the universe. The English translation, worthy, comes from the same root where we get our English word worship, which if you go back into uh, medieval English and old English, comes from the word worth-ship, which indicates attributing to someone worth and value because of what they have done. But that is the English etymology, the English word. But the, both the Hebrew and the Greek words go far beyond that. Worthiness is certainly part of it in ascribing that to God and recognizing his being the only one worthy of our worship, honor, and devotion. But it goes uh, much beyond that. So we need to get into a specific understanding of just exactly what Worship is. A number of years ago, Donald Gray Barnhouse, who is a pastor of the 10th Presbyterian Church in uh, Philadelphia, a very famous uh, radio Bible teacher, uh, wrote several books. Some of you have probably read his book on the Invisible War, which is a classic written back in the 50s on, on spiritual warfare. He was a dispensationalist, and he was a very solid uh, Bible teacher in many, many ways. I always like to bring out a point about it's interesting how, how things happen with great Bible teachers. Barnhouse, I recently discovered, had uh, uh, developed a brain tumor in his latter years. He re in those last two years of his life, he rejected dispensationalism. He rejected uh, 
he 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 became you know he affirmed charismatics he did, he basically reversed himself on almost everything he had taught most of his life and then it and he became a universalist everybody's going to go to heaven he just changed everything but they discovered right before he died that he had had a brain tumor and one time i did a study on how uh, pastors and great great pastors and theologians had ended their years and it's interesting uh, just to do that study sometime and see how uh, those senior years affect and have affected so many pastors. Luther was just a almost a bitter, angry old man. This is the period of his time when he just made all these vitriolic statements uh, about the Jews. And so it's those senior years that seem to be a real test, not just for pastors, but for everybody to maintain their focus and on the Lord. And of course, sometimes it's it's a result of of uh, just biological things that happen that we have no control over. But anyway, Barnhouse was traveling in Texas. This is the era before there was air conditioning. <clears throat> and air conditioning made this part of Texas. And he was in Beaumont. And there was a large sign. And you, if you're very many years along, you remember signs like this. And this was a sign that encouraged people to go to ch- the church of their choice and worship God. And he pulled up to a stop sign, and there's this large billboard there, and a car pulled up next to him. And back in those days, everybody drove around with their windows down because you didn't have air conditioning in the car. And so he could overhear the conversation, the car next to him. And this little boy asked his father, said, Daddy, what does worship mean? And his father replied, it means to go to church and listen to the preacher preach. Unfortunately, that's what most people think that worship is. On the other hand, a lot of people today think that what worship is is going to church and singing choruses or songs, but primarily just singing, for about 40 or 45 minutes, and that that is something different from what the preacher does when he stands up for 15 or 20 minutes in these kinds of churches and gives a little devotional. Unfortunately, Neither of those views are biblical uh, concepts of worship. What happened in previous generation is that as your standard churches, your, your mainline denominational churches shifted to uh, liberalism and the influence of liberal theology, they got away from the Bible. And so you got a lot of well-meaning, moral-based uh, homilies on Sunday morning, but nobody was learning the Bible. Consequently, people got bored with uh, shallow, superficial sermons, or they reacted to services that always ended up uh, dunning everybody for more money. And eventually, by the 60s and the rise of the baby boom generation, they reacted to that as just dead, meaningless form, and it didn't have any real life. And on the, at the same time, as baby boomers were coming up, they were being inculcated with the, the beats and the rhythms of uh, rock from Elvis all the way up through the Beatles. And they said, well, you know, we can really liven church up a little bit if we just take the music that we listen to on the radio every day and we just add a bunch of Christian lyrics to it and then bring that into the church. 
And so you had the development and origin of what is called contemporary Christian music in that. And I'll get into that in a little more detail next time. And it comes into the church, and by the early 80s, it was making significant inroads. And uh, today, uh, you are called a dinosaur. You're called carnal. You're called Pharisaic legalist if you do not get involved in contemporary Christian music. And I know about four churches in the Houston area that do not have any form of contemporary Christian music, and every one of the pastors gets criticized continuously for being so backward that we aren't getting, we're not spiritual because of the kind of music that we that we have. So, and which has a lot of problems, and I'll get into that next time. That's not my focus this morning. So today we live in a generation of Christianity, so-called Christianity, where the historic biblical patterns of worship that were hammered out by great Bible students over the uh, centuries has been denigrated as just dead tradition with no spiritual value and are being replaced by forms of worship that are influenced by what's popular in the marketplace of the unbeliever in order to make the unbeliever feel comfortable when he comes to church. That's the ultimate motive is so that because there's a deep connection between the rise of contemporary Christian music and contemporary Christian worship to the whole church growth movement. All of these things are interconnected historically because the goal is to have music that doesn't turn off the unbeliever. Hmm. Give that a little thought. So, what exactly is worship? Well, let's get into what the Scripture says and the Hebrew and Greek terms for worship. There are two primary words that are used in the Old Testament, two primary words that are used in the New Testament, and they're very similar to one another in their meaning. There's some secondary words that are translated worship uh, here or there, but these are the two main words. The first Hebrew word that's translated worship is the word abad, A-B-A-D. This means uh, to work. It's the basic word for work, for labor. Uh, forms of this word refer to servants. It means to, uh, it can refer to a slave in some forms of the word. And it is translated worship in the sense of serving God. This is how it is used in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. You shall fear the Lord your God and serve Him. Note the connection between these two concepts, fearing the Lord and serving Him. Serving God is an outgrowth of fearing Him. Now, what does it mean to fear God? As I pointed out on Thursday night in our Bible class in Hebrews, fearing God is much more than having respect for God. I used the illustration of being sent to the principal's office when you were a kid. I remember when I was in kindergarten, I got sent to the principal's office for my first and last time. I never went to the principal's office when I was in high school, not that I didn't deserve it, but I knew I had to be really smart because his wife was my mother's best friend, and he had permission to do anything short of take my life. And if he ever caught me, I knew that, boy, I would really catch it 
when I got home. So I had to be devious rather than obedient. But when I was in kindergarten, now some of you just can't relate to this. When I was in kindergarten, there were three of us who went to school early in the morning, and this was in Toronto, Canada, and we had had a heavy snowfall the night before, and so there was this huge blank brick wall at the school, and we were throwing snowballs at the school. Now, some of you who are younger, just this will never compute, but we were sent to the principal's office for showing disrespect to the school building. And in the day of graffiti and everything else that's going on, people can't understand that, but we were... This was in Toronto, and we were sent to the principal's office for showing disrespect. And the three of us stood there, and apparently the other two boys stood there, and they kind of looked at their feet, and they shuffled their feet back and forth, and they had rather disrespectful attitudes towards the principal. I, on the other hand, must have had some good training from my parents because I was just scared to death. And I was glued to every word that he said, and it was, yes, sir, yes, sir, yes, sir, three bags full. You know the drill. And um, as a result, the other two boys were sent home, and the principal kept me in the office. He said, because you listened to me and you showed respect, you get to stay in school, and I'm not going to send you home for the day. Well, see, that's what fear is. It is not just respect. It is a recognition of all of the consequences that can come to you as a result of disobedience. So there is an element of real fear and dread in the fear of the Lord. So there is a connection here between fearing the Lord your God and serving Him. It is a fear that is motivated by a recognition of His authority and the consequences real consequences of disobedience. So that is the idea of, of worship here. The New American Standard, in fact, translates the word worship. New King James translates it serve, which is probably a better sense, but it is more the idea of personal service to God as a form of worship. The second word that is used in the Old Testament for worship is the Hebrew word shachab which means to fall prostrate or to be despondent. It is a, something that would take place when an inferior was before a superior and would fall down uh, upon his face. The idea of being despondent is one that is related to that concept of fear. So you see there's a connection here that going into the presence of the one in authority is not something that is taken lightly. It is not something that is treated casually. Now, just as a side note there, that's something that I've noted over the last 20 or 30 years. As I look around, it's not uh, an issue here, but I have uh, friends of mine who pastor in different parts of the country, notably Southern California. Seems like all of the uh, lack of authority orientation originates out of a Southern California culture. But in Southern California, there are probably three people who wear a coat, I didn't say tie, I said a coat in the pulpit. They dress extremely casually. Of course, the guy with the purpose-driven church is made you know, wearing Hawaiian shirts famous because that's his, that's his thing. But um, this is, you have people who come to church and they're wearing cutoffs and sandals and 
My question is, if you came into the presence and had a luncheon, you were invited to the White House, how would you dress? If you had a, an audience with the Queen of England, how would you dress? And see, there's a purpose that church is coming in, in one sense, into the presence of God and His Word and showing respect for what we are doing, and that is indicated by how we dress. Now, if you're a baby boomer, you were told a lie when you were back there in the 60s that how you dressed had nothing to do with your mental attitude. And some of you may still want to debate that, but... Uh, that's just a lie. You can go to tr- school in blue jeans and cutoffs. It didn't matter how you were dressed. And, and I was a senior in high school when all that changed. And uh, it, those were the days when authority started to was being rejected and minimalized. And a lot of the problems that we have today is the fact that we live in a culture that's just completely lost authority orientation. And all of these are just different aspects of what it means to show respect for people, for the institution, and for what you are engaged in. And once those things get lost, then it affects the the whole matrix of the culture. All of these things interconnect. Well, this word shaka is used uh, three times in Genesis that give us uh, an interesting insight into the meaning of the word. The first time this word is used, the first time we run into this concept of worship is in Genesis 22.5, which we studied on Thursday night in our Hebrew series. This is the final test that God gave Abraham when he called upon Abraham to bring Isaac, his son, his only son, to, the, to Mount Moriah and to bind him and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on the altar. This is Isaac, the seed that God had promised Abraham for the last 25 years, for 25 years before he was born. And then Isaac is probably anywhere from his late teens to early 30s at this time. And Abraham is on the way to Mount Moriah to uh, tie him down and to offer him as a burnt offering in obedience to God. And so he instructs his servants to stay where they had camped the night before. And he says, the lad and I will go uh, yonder and worship. And we, notice is we, will come back to you. Because as we saw the other night in Hebrews 11, we're told that Abraham recognized, and this was how he passed the test, that God had promised him uh, innumerable descendants through Isaac. In Isaac, his descendants would be named. So he knew that even if he carried out God's command to sacrifice Isaac, that God would bring him back from the dead, and he understood that. God, at the last minute, stayed his hand and provided a substitute by a ram that was caught in the bushes, and it was the ram that was sacrificed instead of Isaac, a picture of what Jesus Christ did on the cross for us that Christ died on the cross for us. So as they go to sacrifice, and he is giving something that means a lot to him, uh, that is defined as worship. That's what sacrifice is. We often think of sacrifices having to do with an animal sacrifice. But the word sacrifice has, at its core meaning, the giving of something that has value to you in order to, the giving up of something that has value for you in order to do something that will bring higher value for you. So it is not necessarily the, the core idea of simply uh, slaughtering an animal in devotion to a deity. 
So Abraham said, stay here and we will go and worship. So that is the act of completely submitting one's authority to God. That is the core idea that we're going to see here in worship. The ideas of service, abad, and shachak both point to the idea of being willing to do everything that God says to do, being in complete submission to his authority. The next time we have the word worship mentioned is a couple of chapters later in Genesis chapter 24. So turn over a couple of pages. Genesis 24 is the story of Abraham sending his servant to go find a bride for Isaac. And on his way to Haran in order to find a bride for Isaac, the servant is on his way and the servant stops and begins to and has prayed that God would guide him and uh, direct him. And then once that has taken place and he has identified Rebekah, then in verse 26 we read, Then the man bowed down his head and worshipped the Lord. In this sense, it has the idea more of giving thanks. Now notice in both of these instances, worship is more individual than it is corporate. Corporate worship doesn't become, doesn't begin to be developed until you get into the ritual instructions of the Mosaic Law, and then later you have additions made to that under uh, King David as he develops the musicians and the choirs that would sing the great psalms involved in uh, worship of the temple. So in Genesis 24:26, and then in verse 48, the servant again reiterates what, uh, what had happened in verse 26. I bowed my head and worshiped the Lord and blessed the Lord God of my master Abraham, who had led me in the way of truth to take the daughter of my master's brother for his son. So it involves thanksgiving. Remember what the, uh, the living beings did. They gave glory and honor and thanks to God. So this is what is exemplified in these particular uh, instances. Now we come into the New Testament and we have the word proskuneo. This is the rough equivalent to shacha. It is. It means to kiss, to adore, to throw a kiss in respect of someone, to worship or to prostrate oneself before a superior. Uh, Spiros Zodiades in his uh, dictionary gives an interesting illustration. He says that the ancient Oriental, especially the Persian model, mode of salutation between persons of equal ranks was to kiss each other on the lips. When the difference of the rank was slight, they kissed each other on the cheek. When one was much inferior, he fell upon his knees and touched his forehead to the ground or prostrated himself, throwing kisses at the same time toward the superior. It is this latter mode of salutation that Greek writers expressed by the verb proskuneo. In the New Testament, generally to do reverence or homage to someone, usually by kneeling or prostrating oneself before him. In the Septuagint, that's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, it means to bow down to prostrate oneself in reverence and homage. So what we have here is a, a parallel to Shachah, and it has that idea of 
being completely obedient or submissive to authority. It's a recognition of our complete subservience as creatures to the authority, direction, and will of God. First place we have it used in the New Testament is in Matthew 2, verse 2. This is when the Magi come to Jerusalem looking for the birthplace of the Lord Jesus Christ, following the star. Now, the Magi were Persians. The Magi came out of Persia. They were an ancient order of wise men, soothsayers, astrologers in, uh, in Persia, and they had risen to a position in the Parthian Empire at this time where for the previous 200 years they were the council within the government that would identify the, the next king. So the challenge for them was, uh, well, I mean, the challenge for Herod was when they showed up looking for the king of the Jews, Herod is really shaking in his boots because what are these Parthian kingmakers doing looking for the king of the Jews and it's not me? So they show up and they say, Where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now what did they do when they came to worship him? Well, if you look down towards the uh, end of this section in Matthew chapter 2, we're told that when they came to the house, notice not the manger, but when they came to the house where uh, Mary and the child was, they saw them, and what did they do? They fell down on the ground. They fell down on their face prostrate before Mary and the child, and they gave gifts. Verse 11, they worshipped him. They fell down, they worshipped him, and when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him. So the presentation of gifts to God, the giving of gifts to God is... Part of worship. That is how we honor and glorify God for all that he has done for us. Now, the fourth word that is used in the scripture for worshiping is the word latreia, which, like avad in the Old Testament, focuses on serving God, to serve God. We place ourselves under his authority. This is the word that is used in Romans 12.1. I beseech you, therefore, Brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. That is, you are giving up our desires, our plan, our agenda, for God's agenda. Uh, get, make, get, present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Some translations translate that as, as worship. The word reasonable means rational. In light of all that God does for us, this is the logical conclusion that we completely devote ourselves to God and his service. So that's just our first point in the doctrine of worship where we're looking at those biblical words. And that leads us to the second element, which is going to be our definition. And that is a lengthy definition. I'm just going to read the first sentence to you and then we will close. Basic concept of worship is to subord to submit or subordinate our opinions, preferences, thoughts, philosophy of life, finances, politics, emotions, relationships, attitudes, actions, time, priorities to the authority of God's word. I couldn't think of anything else to put in there. That pretty much covers it. 
to submit or subordinate our opinions, preferences, thoughts, philosophy of life, finances, politics, emotions, relationships, attitudes, actions, time, and priorities to the authority of God's Word. That is why when we have corporate worship, the focal point is the Word of God because the Word of God is that which teaches us how to think as God thinks, what those priorities are, what those viewpoints should be, what our preferences should be, what our opinion should be, how we can tell truth from error. And it is the Word of God that is that which God uses to conform us to the thinking and the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the highest form of worship is to come and study the Word of God, to learn the Word of God, because as Jesus prayed to the Father the night before he went to the cross in his high priestly prayer in John 17, he said, Father, sanctify them by truth. Thy Word is truth. It is the Word of God, the truth, because it is absolute truth, that is the means of our sanctification. And so we will... Just conclude there with looking at our first point and barely into the second point on the doctrine of worship, and we'll come back to that more next week with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you that we can come together and worship you because we understand what you have done for us, that you demonstrated your love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The ultimate focal point of all worship goes back to your plan of salvation, your redemption uh, of us through the Lord Jesus Christ. As we see in this coming chapter that it is the Lord Jesus Christ who is worthy because he is the one who died for us. He is the one who gave his life that we might have eternal life. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that is unsure of their salvation, uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Right now, right where you sit, all you need to do is to believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. At the instant that you believe that, when you trust in Christ, you have eternal life. You can never lose that eternal life. You will always have uh, that destiny of heaven. This is your opportunity. It's not a matter of joining a church or reforming your life or making a deal with God. It's simply a matter of putting your faith alone in Christ alone. Now, Father, we pray that as we continue our study of these things, that you would give us a greater understanding and appreciation for what worship is, as well as what it means for us to worship you both in our lives and in our corporate life as a church. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.